This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Oro Recovery. What is Oro Recovery? It is an amazing treatment facility, facilities program in sunny Southern California. Founded by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob, their mission to help the afflicted by treating them with compassion and connection rather than control. Their staff has many, many decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI, and they do it nicely. Everyone we know that has been to Oro only said good things. And maybe if someone said a bad thing, I wouldn't mention it, but no one has said a bad thing, and I think that is incredibly relevant to this advertisement, this mention. Oro has amenities you wouldn't believe, surfing, equine therapy, fucking yoga, and of course, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. Did I mention sound bath meditation? If I was going to relapse and I needed a place to go, I would definitely be going to Oro. And if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get help, I have to recommend Oro to you. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Sober Buddy, my compatriots at Sober Buddy. Sober Buddy is an app. It is a platform. It is social media. It is a resource designed to help addicts and alcoholics to get and stay sober. My favorite part of Sober Buddy are the Zooms. They do 11 or 12 or maybe even 13 Zooms a week now. I host a Zoom on Wednesdays. Our Zoom this week was just so beautiful and real. And, uh, you know, I have to say it. It was a great Zoom. I have to suggest checking out Sober Buddy. I think it's 12 bucks a month, which is cheaper than a really expensive coffee. Definitely cheaper than three of them. So if you're looking for help and you want some support and you want to be part of a community, check out Sober Buddy at YourSoberBuddy.com or at the App Store or the Google Play Store. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends in accounting and taxes Evolution Accounting and Consulting. Eric and the boys are hard at work. It is tax season. Do you have an accountant? Maybe you need some last-minute work done. Evolution Accounting and Consulting is all about letting business people follow their dreams while they take care of the payroll and the taxes and all of the nitty-gritty. If you are a business owner and you need some help anywhere around accounting or consulting, Get in touch with them at www.evolution-accounting.com and they will give you a discount if you use the code DOPEY. They will take care of you. It is tax time. Get to them now. This episode of DOPEY is also brought to you by our very good friends at SoberLink. Getting sober requires a rewiring of the brain. Instead of reaching for a drink, we have learned how to reach for support. It can be hard especially if you don't have something or someone to help keep you accountable. And that's why we teamed up with Soberlink. Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is the no BS way to get and to stay sober. On Soberlink, you'll test two or three times a day at scheduled times. With each test, your identity is confirmed and your results are sent in real time to your loved ones. S small enough to fit in your pocket and discreet enough to use in public. Soberlink can be used anywhere, anytime, and is the perfect solution for improving accountability and building back trust. 
Make 2023 a memorable year. Visit www.soberlink.com slash dopey and receive 50 bucks off your device. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by The Phoenix. What is The Phoenix? The Phoenix is an incredible nonprofit organization set up to help addicts and alcoholics by getting them out there, getting them involved. They believe that one of the keys to recovery is to have fun, and I agree with them. They believe that one of the the greatest parts of recovery is connecting with other addicts and alcoholics in recovery, and I agree with them about that too. So what do they do? They set up free programs in all sorts of gyms and music venues all across the country. You can check them out at thephoenix.org. We are lucky enough to be participating in an event with them in New Orleans. So if you want to come to our Phoenix Dopey event in New Orleans, write me. It's on uh, April 27th. I'm incredibly excited about it. I'm also supposedly about to start CrossFit training with them. But we'll see if that ever happens. But although the Dopey Fitness Challenge is in full effect, so maybe I will be CrossFit training with the guys at the Phoenix, specifically Chris Spolina. So check them out at thephoenix.org. That is thephoenix.org slash movement and thephoenix.org slash find a class. All they need is 48 hours of sobriety and you're in. All right, check out the Phoenix. Check us out in New Orleans. Enough with the fucking ads. Here's the fucking show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. It is like the most beautiful day in the world, and I am stuck inside recording the world's greatest podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. But I feel good. Just so you guys know, I love making this show. It is one of my very favorite things to do. It's also like springtime, and today I got the garden going again, or the beginning. Me and Susan like raked up, and Susan's my four-year-old daughter, we raked up a bunch of dead leaves and fucking all these vines and shit. Like my my backyard is just like there's vines everywhere. Long Island is just full of vines, creepy vines with thorns, and it's 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 intense because you have to keep cutting them back. And I've always I you know personally I'm one for metaphors, and I've always saw the vines in the gardening just like recovery. They require constant vigilance, constantly dealing with it, tending it, working at it. And today I was like, I had this vision of growing these giant sunflowers, like around where I live, people grow all these giant sunflowers. So I went to the store and I bought all these sunflower seeds. They have these mammoth sunflowers and skyscraper sunflowers, and then these little bags of assorted sunflowers. So me and Susan were planting sunflowers seeds but like honestly we didn't do it in a really methodical way we didn't get nice soil we didn't spread them apart in a nice sort of way we just did it really haphazardly and like we know i know those who knows how many of those seeds we'll sow and how many sunflowers we will get as opposed to actually doing it right and really doing it nicely and and i mean listen that's the great metaphor if you put the work in, 
you get the work out. And we, uh, we also planted two strawberry plants, if you're really interested. Two strawberry plants. And we're going to plant tomatoes. We're going to do zucchinis. I'm going to do more flowers. I know you guys are dying to know the state of our gardens here. Uh, eventually, we're going to have a fucking nice yard. Right now, our yard is just full of dog toys. It's like Linda keeps coming home with these big rubber animals that when you squeeze them, they oink. And, and we have an oinking pig an oinking rhinoceros, and an oinking elephant, and Winnie bites them until they don't oink anymore. And we also found out Winnie's lineage. I know you guys are dying to know Winnie's lineage. Um, maybe I'll just tell you on Patreon. Join Dopey Patreon and learn Winnie's lineage. Now, Winnie's lineage, she's 58% pit bull, 14% Cocker Spaniel, 14% Husky, and 12% Dachshund. That is her her biological makeup. So dog lovers, what do you guys make of that? What do you make of that incredible combination? We have a ton of stuff to get to today. We have uh, an amazing author on the show. She's also a judge. Her name is Mary Beth O'Connor. She wrote a book called from junkie to judge, and it is it is really, really good, and uh, I really enjoyed talking with her. And again, they were doing construction at my dad's apartment, so the good people at Time Magazine welcomed us with open arms, Pete Callahan and the crew at Time. So big shout-out to Pete. I got a note um, from a, a dopey listener. His name is Todd, and the, do and the note said... It's interesting. The note said, dude... I have listened to every podcast and I'll share thoughts in another email. Why don't you isolate a clip of Chris's congratulatory vape knocks and play that drop instead of the tacky canned applause you have? You should start playing drops that are more personal to the show. I think Dopey needs to be more self-referential and not generic. Just my thoughts for now. And my response to him was going to be like, go fuck you, Todd. It's, I'm making the show. But then I realized... He's, it's, he's right. It's a good idea. So I wrote, I thought about it, that. I'll try it. So from now on, no more, which I do. I love the tacky applause. And now instead we will do go back to the old vape knocks. And uh, let's see how long that lasts. I have a couple amends I need to make on the show. The first amend I'd like to make is for Senor Dios Mio. He, um, I think I called him a homicidal maniac last week with my dad and Senor Dios Mio is just a, a deep, deep dopey fan. So big shout out to Senor Dios Mio. Hold on. Vape knocks for you. And uh, But see, everybody wants me to bash my dad's friend Seymour. Todd says, you should do more shit talking on Seymour and tell your audience who won the Fantasy League. Have a great weekend, Dave. I think we will get that information today. Senor Dios Mio hates Seymour. <laughs> He fucking hates him, which I think is the best. Uh, let me see what Senor Dios Mio just said about Seymour. I just got a, a message on Twitter from him, and he says, uh, did we beat Seymour? I need to get a spot in the show. I want to be named as an intern. We're going to stop right there, Senor Dios Mio. Listen, Claire is the intern, and Claire actually does stuff. So if you want to be an intern on Dopey and get like mentions on the show, you got to do stuff as an intern. 
And if anyone out there wants to be an intern for Dopey, write us at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. But that intern title doesn't come lightly. It requires some responsibility. So, Senor Dios Mio, anybody else that wants to be an intern, we would love to have another intern on the staff. That would be incredible. Also, Claire is Canadian. And another amend I need to make is to Canadians in general. I feel that Dopey has been a bastion for anti-Canadian sentiment, and I want to apologize to all of the Canadians in and outside of the Dopey Nation. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know why I thought it was so funny to bash you guys. So I apologize. But before the amend really kicks in, I just want to play this one clip. I moved here from Canada, and they think I'm slow, eh? All right, now the Canadian bashing is over, and I want to make a, a real amend. I got this note on Instagram. I wanted to read it, so here it is. Uh, this one says, and this is this dude from New Orleans, because we're go I'm going to New Orleans at the end of the month. I'm going in there on the 26th. We have an event on the 27th with the Phoenix, uh, which is a nonprofit organization, and I'll tell you more about that in a second. But he says, dude, Dave, I hope I'm not coming off too stalker-like. I'm just really juiced about the show and maybe meeting you this month. Anyway, I'm messaging you because I learned and saw some crazy shit today. I was working a construction job as I'm a contractor. There was another guy on the job, a new guy, and just a helper. He just got out of prison in February after doing a 10-plus year straight uh, bit. As I mentioned before, I went to prison at 17 with a 10-year sentence myself. So because I still have a strange interest in prison, just because how weird it is, there's a whole world of culture and shit to learn. Anyway, the guy and I got to talking drugs, drugs in prison to be exact. I mentioned I'm on Suboxone, and we talked about how desired strips are in there. They sell for $100 plus as they cut them into so many tiny little $20 pieces. When I was in there, people just put it under their tongue or they mixed it with water in a toothpaste cap and snorted it. What I learned today is that they have discovered a new way to get high on Suboxone. These crazy motherfuckers now take a piece of a strip, pull back their lower eyelid, and stick the orange fucking poison directly into their eyeball. Uh, he blew my fucking mind when he said that. I've dropped acid in my eye. It didn't burn. Felt like drops, but this guy tells me it burns like hell. No shit. It's because it doesn't belong there. The best part is that since I told him I was on strips, he asked me for a piece. Normally, I would have declined, but I just had to know that and see that he wasn't fucking with me. He wasn't. I gave him the sliver of a strip. He put it in his eye, tears flowing <laughs> down his face in real pain. I couldn't believe it. So retarded. Okay, well, love you, dude. Thought you'd get a kick out of this as, though, as you always ask people if they've dropped acid on their eyes. Till next time, stay strong, Davey, and toodles. I love that story. I love that uh, that this guy would share his Suboxone just so he could see somebody put it in their eyeball. And uh, if you're out there and you've dropped acid in your eyes, or even more importantly, put Suboxone in your eyes, send in an email or a voicemail to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. That would be fantastic. So we're about to have Mary Beth O'Connor, the incredible author of From Junkie to Judge on the show. But before we get to her, I just want to say that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by BetterHelp. Do you guys feel like you know yourself? 
Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process. One thing that has really helped me get to know myself is therapy. Talking it out. Talking about what I'm afraid of. Talking about what I love to do. Talking about what I hate to do. Talking about things that I've done that I regret and things that I want to do in the future. Therapy has really helped me to understand myself and I've benefited from it so much. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you should totally give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It is designed to be convenient. It's flexible and it's suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Dopey Podcast today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Dopey Podcast. Get the 10% off. Also, if you're looking for a podcast to listen to and you're tired of Dopey, I know, I know, nobody's tired of Dopey. But if you're looking for another podcast, you got to check out Nat and Mike at Recovery in the Middle Ages. They are an amazing podcast all about two suburban middle-aged dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. You can listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, alt-recovery, the newest medical research books. They even talk about Dopey once in a while and how they maintain their recovery and their anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings, if the neighbors only knew. Find Recovery in the Middle Ages where you get all of your podcasts. All right, so now we're going to get to Mary Beth O'Connor, but I just need to give a slight warning to the audience. A lot, I mean, most of our interviews are very graphic. This interview is graphic in other ways. Mary Beth describes self-harm very graphically as well as being the victim of sexual assault very graphically. So if that is hard for you to listen to, uh, be warned. She is an amazing guest, an amazing writer, and uh, without further ado, here is Mary Beth O'Connor. One last thing real quick before Mary Beth. It's like, if you love Dopey and you listen to Dopey for free and, you want, and you're part of the Dopey Nation and you're looking for a way to support the show, sign up for Patreon. It's tons of material. It's a way to support the show. I've been doing all these just for today, daily reflections, bonus interviews, bonus videos. There's a ton of stuff on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash dopey podcast. Check it out. And here is Mary Beth O'Connor. No relation to Chris. So hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And you probably are the smartest guest we'll have on our stupid show. So welcome to the show. <laughs> Her name is Mary Beth O'Connor. She's a judge. You were a lawyer and you were a hardcore meth shooting crazy person. Yeah, although not simultaneously. That's the that's the good side of it. Yeah, but you were you one thing I really liked about the story and I can relate to, I shot a little bit of meth and I shot meth at offices and working in bathrooms and offices. So I could really relate to that part of the story. And it's rare to have a guest on who's in an office shooting meth. So I appreciate that. Yeah, well, in my last job, when I did the interview, I was really happy because in the bathroom, there was a shelf. And so that would hold my spoon, you know, to lay flat. And so I thought, yay, this is a good job because I can easily shoot up in the bathroom. Yeah, mine had a desk drawer 
where I had a tissue box and <laughs> underneath the tissues, I kept tourniquet, spoon, works, mess. We make it work. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> until, until we don't. Yes. Your book is called From Junkie to Judge, and it is a crazy book, and it's great. So first of all, if you are out there and you're looking for a crazy, they call it quit lit, which I don't love that phrase, but it's an amazing book. It's an amazing story. Ama it's a really amazing journey. And you had a rough time in your childhood. I mean, first of all, you had to be born in New Jersey. That's not easy. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your, your childhood? Yeah, and I included it in the book for a reason because I wanted it to be clear that picking up drugs at that age made sense to me and why it made sense. And so for me, it was really in the beginning a lack of connection to my mother, which had a, actually a significant impact. She wasn't focused on me. She didn't ask me questions about what I was interested in or doing. She was just yell, I want everything to be quiet or hit. But it got a lot worse when I was nine and she married my stepfather because he was extremely violent with her and he was violent with me physically, sexually violent with me. So I just, you know, never knew where, there was no safety. I never knew what was going to happen to me. I didn't have a lot of control over what happened to me. I developed some techniques to try to reduce the violence, but I couldn't get rid of it. And so it was just high stress and it made me sort of vulnerable to finding solutions that seemed like they would make me feel better in the moment. Totally. And, and, and your mother had you and she almost immediately sent you to your grandma's. I lived in the first six months in a nunnery yeah, because my mother wasn't married, which was a big deal in 1961. And my grandparents wouldn't let her bring me home. And even under my mother's version of events, she, would, she did not visit that much. Okay, um, But then later, I lived with her from six months old to six. And then from six to nine, I lived with my great-grandmother. So twice I lived with people other than my mother. And they and they gave you a stable, loving home, but you missed your mom and you and you didn't have your dad. Right. I mean, my nan was much better than my mother. I really would have been better off had I been left there the whole time because she she wasn't she wasn't really that good at nurturing, but she wasn't creating chaos and she wasn't being you know outrageous or picky about things. So it was a softer, mellower environment, even though she wasn't really like highly focused on the nurturing side. Yeah, your mom seemed like very self-centered and uh, and very difficult to deal with. She, she was. She was. She, and even after I got sober, she continued to be that way, which was a problem because I never really was able to resolve anything with her because she never changed. You know, she kept doing it even into my adulthood. With you, but you said she was better with the grandkids. She was better. I mean, she wasn't great, but she was better. She, she ended up with custody of my sister's three kids. And, you know, I tried to respect her for that. I helped her when I thought it was re she needed real help and not something that was created from her gambling or some, or some other chaos on her end. And she was better with them. And also my stepfather wasn't there. So they didn't have that extra layer, but she still was problematic, but she was better. Was it your stepfather's real name, Alan, or was that a name to change for the book? That was his real name. Yeah. My dad's name is Alan. And my dad is not like your stepfather, but I would listen to your book and my little daughter would get in the car and the, the Bluetooth would pick it up and it would cut to some horrific story about Alan. And she'd be like, Grandpa Alan? I'd be like, no, oh. it's, it's another Alan. Oh. And what a, what a harrowing, horrible situation. Like Mary Beth's stepfather was this violent, abusive, disgusting character that your mother, I guess, fell in love with. He was like fancy and they had a kid. And, and, and he was violent to your mom and he was violent to you. And your mom left for a second, though, 
Yeah, she moved us out, but she moved us like three miles from the house. Maybe it was two. You know, I don't, I never even at the time believed it was a real leaving. I thought it was her trying to see what he would do if we left. Maybe he'd get better because we lived in the same town. We were literally, I mean, we were really close to him. And so it, it didn't last long, which was, which didn't surprise me. Although at the same time, I was really angry that she went back to him because we had been away for a while. And, I, and you say she loved him. I don't know that. I, I think that she looked at him as a way out of being single and the stress of being single. And he had a good union job and he could buy her things that she liked. And he was a good looking guy and he was charming. So it never occurred to me to think, did she love him? I'm not sure that that's true. Well, I certainly don't know. <laughs> was she capable of loving anybody? That I, I don't know. I, I mean, at some level, I think she... She had affection, you know, she, but not loving in the way that you would tie emotion and behavior together, right? That was definitely missing. And you had a younger sister, Cindy, and a younger brother with, who was your half-brother with, or Cindy was your half-sister too? She was, yeah. She wasn't Alan's though, was no. she? No. So you had two half-siblings, Cindy and Albert. Did your mother show more love to either of them? No, not really. A, a little bit more with Albert, but not with Cindy and me. My sister and I have a very consistent viewpoint about my mother, whereas her, my sister's children have a different viewpoint because they had a different experience. Albert, maybe there was a little bit more affection, but it, she still, for example, let him move in with Alan after they separated. And then she had to go get custody of him because of Alan's violence. And so if there was love in her heart, it just never matched her behavior. Right. And, and how old were you when you had your first drink? 12. And at that point, was that before or after? I mean, Alan had been violent with you, your stepfather, but had he been sexually inappropriate with you at that point? It was around the same time. So, but I, and I don't remember which came first, but it was around the same time. I mean, I cannot imagine what that situation was like to be going through puberty and have your mother's husband, who made you call him daddy, and you referred to him as your dad. In the book, they were your parents. Yes. Did he adopt you? No. Was it ever in your head, this isn't my dad? It was always in my head, this isn't my dad. But I didn't really have a dad either because my mother married, so my biological father disappeared before I was born. My mother married John, who became my sister's father, and he did adopt me, but they separated when I was six, and I barely saw him until I through age 13. And I didn't see him ever after age 13 until I was like 50. And I saw him one time in Florida before he died. And that was it. So I didn't really have a father. It wasn't like I thought this other person is my father. It was really like there's an absence of. Yeah. And it just, it struck me in the book that you described him as these are my parents. This is my dad. And I can imagine how painful it was to even have to write that when he clearly wasn't. Yes, and but he was really insistent that we that we call him that, and so I adopted the terminology. And it also was just easier because we were living with him. I lived with him for ten years, and so it was simpler. But I never felt emotionally like he was my father, and I knew he didn't feel that way toward me. Right? Was he violent with Albert? He wasn't violent with Albert until after my mother left Alan, so Albert was older. When when we all lived together as a group, he was mostly violent with my mother and me, a little with my sister and not Albert. But the reality is that Albert witnessed a lot of violence. And now we really appreciate that that's a trauma in and of itself. And so, you know, he had a lot of behaviors of fear, a lot of, you know, cowering, hiding behind things when voices got loud or arguing started. So he had trauma responses, but he wasn't directly physically abused by Alan until later. It's terrifying. 
and you're in that situation and then you start to go through puberty and that's when it, I mean, like I think threats of violence are terrifying, but I mean, I have a 13 year old daughter, like the idea of, of, of a sexual threat at home to her, it, it curdles my, my whole being and I'm not you, you know, this happened to you. So in that moment, when you were first exposed to alcohol, I'm sure the alcohol was like, thank fucking God. I noticed right away the emotional positives of it, right? I mean, I almost felt like I could take a deeper breath. Like I was looser. I was giddy. My girlfriend and I were laying on the floor, you know, laughing. And I didn't remember feeling lighthearted like that. And that caught my attention. I did notice it. Oh, this is a positive experience. I need to make this happen more and more and more. Yeah, I think that is a critical piece of this story. Your life was so, I mean, and you also, Mary Beth was a genius. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many times I need to say that. You were a genius as a kid. You were so far ahead of, of your studies. You were acknowledged by your school, by peers, but nobody, did your mother appreciate your intellect or not so much? I mean, I wouldn't call myself a genius, but thank you. Um, but I did always do really well at school. And you I were a, pretty, pretty shiny. <laughs> I was pretty smart. Yeah. And my mother, sometimes I would hear her mention it to other people, like in a, you know, bragging like thing, almost like reflecting well on her that I was doing so well, but she never said anything to me about it. She only, I, I remember one time I tried to get her to help me with my French because she was proud that she remembered her French from high school and she got really irritated because I wasn't perfect with it. And so she didn't want to engage with school, but occasionally she used it as, look what a great mother I am. My daughter's doing so well in school kind of thing. Right. And, and also you talked about how um, your mother was proud of how you looked, you know, and I guess she, it gave her value that her daughter was this very beautiful, tall, you know, voluptuous young person. Yeah, she liked when we presented well. And so did Alan. It was important to him that Cindy and I, you know, not only looked like pretty girls. I mean, Alan cared nothing about how smart I was. To him, it was actually a negative because I was smarter than him and I could put him down and, and I would do it when I felt like I needed to push back or just really literally stand up for myself. Like I'm a, I'm a person here, you know, and my only power was words and, and my ability to make him look stupid. But they both liked us to look like pretty quiet, you know, compliant young women. And that's what we strove to do. Right. And it makes me afraid and uncomfortable, but I think it could help some of the audience to talk about what he did to you. Yeah. So, I mean, one time my mother was in the hospital and uh, he came to my room to get me to go to his bed, which when he was working or going, because he worked shifts. So sometimes I would, my mother would be out and I would be the oldest. I was the oldest in the family and I would go, he would do that. And I would go there until my mother got home. And so I was in a sleep and I thought that's what was happening. But then I realized his breath smelled like alcohol and he didn't go to work when he had been drinking. And so he was touching me uh, in the bed and I was just frozen in terror because I knew there was nothing I could do to stop him. But uh, it turned out I had my period. And so when he felt the sanitary napkin, he pushed me out of the bed. And then after that, he for, for the years after that, he would make sexual comments or he would back me into a corner and say things like he's going to teach me how to do, you know, oral sex or things like that. And I always was waiting for it to happen again. And he never did touch me again. He just threatened me. But I didn't know at the time that he wasn't going to do it again. And so I was always waiting for the next event. Terrifying. Did you tell your mom? No, it didn't even occur to me to tell my mother. You didn't tell anybody? You tell no, Cindy? I didn't tell Cindy. 
I didn't tell Cindy. I mean, she was younger. And, I, you know, I always viewed my job as trying to take care of Cindy to the best of my limited ability. So I didn't tell her. I don't, I didn't tell anyone. I, I don't think I told anyone until I got sober, maybe. I, I don't know. I probably told my, my partner, my current husband, when we were together for a long time. But I rarely mentioned it. And I don't remember combining girlfriends at all about it. Well, I, it's such a different time. It's like this kind of conversation is on everybody's lips right now. Trauma and 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 when I was a kid, it was like kind of in the background of TV shows about kids. When you were a kid, it wasn't. Well, the other problem was that the police would come to our house once in a while because of Alan beating my mother. Occasionally, it'd be so bad that the neighbors would call the police, and they never did anything except one time when he really almost killed her. So I had no sense that, for example, the police were going to help if I said something. My mother couldn't take care of herself. You know, how was she going to take care of me on top of which she wasn't really interested in me as a person? So it didn't occur to me to tell her, and there wasn't really any sense that the authorities would get involved if I said anything. I never thought about it that far because I, I, I absorbed what happened when they came when he was clearly um, beating my mother. She would, might have a bloody nose and they would still tell him, go cool off, come back later. That, that would be the cop's reaction, yes, the police's reaction. Yes, Crazy. that's what the police would do. Crazy. And at that, around that time, you start going to the bar? Yeah, so when I was 18, when, when I was in New Jersey, I grew up in New Jersey, which I'm very proud of, by the way. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> My dad, my dad is the most woke and upright of Jewish liberal middle class teachers. And he only taught me to dislike one kind of person. <laughs> and that was the kind of person from New Jersey. And I'm your honor. I'm not going to hold that against you because I am free of such prejudice. But my father is not as open minded as I am. But I'm happy you're proud to be from New Jersey. Good for you. Oh, my, my, you know where my bias is? Is against Canadians. But that's a whole other, ah, there you that's go. A whole other story. Um, well, at the time, uh, the drinking age was 18 in New Jersey. And so once I was 13, 14, I, mean, I, always, I was t always tall and I always looked older. And they just weren't that careful about carding. So I they didn't care. You were some young woman who looked 17, 16, and then maybe we'll pass. Yes. And it was like a weird biker bar, right? Well, it, there definitely were bikers there. So it was like, you know, sort of a, it, it was the bar, I went to the bars where the druggies hung out because those were my people, right? And so, yeah, that included some people that were in biker clubs, but also just the general town, you know, the subgroup of us that did serious drugs. What was the first serious drug? I mean, it depends on how you look at it. So I went from alcohol, which, you know, really is a serious drug, kills more Americans than all the other drugs combined. Totally. But, and then on to pot, and then I did pills, acid. But the big shift for me was when I picked up methamphetamine, which was when I was 16, and I was shooting up within six months. None of it compared to meth for you? No, none of it compared. I was always looking for the next best thing. In fact, I think in the book I say something like when the first line was put out that I'd like to say that I paused and thought about it, but, you know, I didn't because to me it was, well, this is the next best high. And meth was, hadn't really been around in volume before. When I was, this is like 1976, 77, and for the first time it was a wash. I mean, the, the, the area, at least for central Jersey, it was the first time it, meth was really in high volume. And so people were talking about it before it even got there. It's coming. There's going to be more. It's, you know, this big thing. And so I ha had a, an interest in it before I ever saw it based on reputation. <laughs> what was the, I mean, you know, I'm a drug addict and I was very interested in drugs before I even became a drug addict. And I know that in the late 60s, there were songs about speed killing and speed kills was a big catchphrase. And I know that in the late 70s, Coke 
you know, smashed into America through the whatever, the cartels and the, whoever those people were in Florida and all that stuff. The what was the 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 show that was just out, like the Cowboys or whatever, where they started distributing in all the clubs in New York and LA and Miami. But the speed movement isn't really discussed as much. So like, what do you know about the speed movement and what was like the coming attractions that you were so excited about? Well, I mean, we, you know, there had been, of course, the amphetamine pills and, and meth had been around before, but what the explanation that was given to me was that there were biker gangs in Western Pennsylvania that were mass producing it now. And so it was making its way east. And then, and everybody that I knew was trying to figure out how to get into the meth distribution, dealer distribution chain. And it, it was very easy to get at a certain point and had never really been around like that. And that's part of the reason, in my mind, I thought of like hardcore drug, but it was heroin. I mean, cocaine wasn't around. I didn't see cocaine until I moved to, to California. Heroin was what you should avoid. Heroin was the really bad drug. Don't shoot heroin. You know, that's where people really get um, strung Fuck. out and they, right. But everything else was sort of okay and that fell into that bucket. Although if we would have been honest with ourselves within a few months, it was obvious that some of us were doing pretty poorly after having started using meth. What about the other drugs before you ever did meth? I mean, I did everything to excess, right? I mean, I did alcohol to excess. I did pot to excess. I did pills, although they weren't as easily around. But then I did acid really to excess. My sophomore year of, of high school, I did a lot of acid, but nothing compared to meth. I mean, the high was so much more intense. And also it was the whole experience experience of it, right? There's the ritual, you know, the chopping and, and, and that, and there's the, the staying up for days and you're hanging out with people, you know, a group for three days and you're, you're playing cards and you're playing games, you're playing Parcheesi and you're talking. And, but also I liked the crash. I mean, I really liked the crash because I had always had a problem sleeping because I, of this trauma, I would, I would have difficulty silencing my brain. I would have difficulty calming down. I had developed calming techniques before bed when I was like four years old. You know, I, was, I had games that I would play with my fingers or stories in my brain to try to focus my attention on something that would sort of lull me to sleep. So this hard crash where I didn't, I didn't remember being asleep, I didn't have dreams that I can remember, no nightmares that I can remember, I liked that part of it as well. It was the whole package that really attracted me. What were some of the uh, routines that you had? I mean, the, the sleep rituals, because oh. maybe it could help somebody out there who's having a hard time yeah. sleeping. Well, and, it, you know, it turns out they weren't always good. But like for I remember when I was young, I would think that I was like Cinderella, you know, and I would be in Cinderella's dress and I would be talking to people or the, talking to the prince. I would be sort of going through the story and wherever I ended it one night, the next night, I would pick it up from that point and move it forward. And it was a way of focusing on something like I would really think about the details. What was I wearing and what were the other people wearing? What was the room like? And all of that sort of focused me on something more neutral and, and maybe even positive because I had seen the movie or whatever it was. And it would lull me to sleep. It stopped me from thinking about my life, my world, my fears, my anxieties. No, I get that. And um, your stepfather, how did that play together? Were you kind of retreating to the drugs, basically? I mean, he was threatening me ongoing for years he would say things and do things and um but he was also being violent during that whole time and so it was just that, that combination it was really about the the fear and the stress was sort of an underlying high level anxiety i mean i 
I taught my sister all kinds of techniques to try to reduce it. It, it, things like how to open the door so it didn't bang because it might wake him up. I taught my sister that when you empty the dishwasher, put one dish away at a time so it doesn't clank. I mean, that's the level of, think about the level of stress you're living under when you can't put more than one dish away at the time. And so it was the whole picture. It wasn't just the sexual side. It was the lack of control, the lack of knowing when he might, you know, come after you because you could do the same thing 10 times and nothing happened. And the 11th time, it was like, you know, the biggest sin on earth. And so it was the whole picture altogether. Um, The sexual was definitely an important factor, but the physical came first. And the physical was more frequent. And the verbal is not to be diminished either. That's true. To have somebody constantly putting you down. It's funny because I grew up in a middle-class Jewish, mostly loving household. And I made sure not to open the door too loudly just because I wouldn't want anyone to know I was coming home or whatever. (laughs) It's relatable. It's like, and also, you know, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate. Yes. His whole theory on, on trauma being on a sliding scale that no matter what your experience is, it, it, it counts, but your trauma is so, you know, your, your trauma counts more than mine. Well, except, you know, it's interesting because at the time there was a book out called Sybil about this woman who had yeah. many multiple personalities. Yeah. And the, the, I read that book and her abuse was way worse than mine. And so in my mind, I, mine wasn't as bad as Sybil's. So maybe I was exaggerating. Maybe I was overreacting. I didn't, I didn't know how to put it in context. I feel like that's a, a big theme in the book, too. And, and it's funny because I, because it's a narrator, it, I don't know if she really captures your, I feel your purpose, which is you blamed yourself and you thought you deserved it, but we both know that you didn't. You know, and that's kind of the voice I got from the book. Like, as, as you move forward into the most harrowing situations and you tend to blame yourself in them, Yes, sometimes it was a blame of myself, but sometimes I also purposely provoked him because I just couldn't take him treating me that way. I mean, I would antagonize him and call him names and say mean things to him sometimes. And I knew I would pay for it, but I felt this like urge to sort of be seen, you know, to fight back, even even with the penalty. So it was a, it's sort of a, a mixed bag. And the other thing is in the beginning, how I reacted to it and how I reacted later were different because over time, I just got worn down. And so I just sort of got more passive about it and, you know, started using the drugs to avoid it. I was more sort of energetic and assertive in the early years than I was in the later years. Well, it's interesting because that was another theme in the book that you have this kind of love of chaos. And it's almost because when there's chaos, the thing that you can't control, no one can control. Whereas if it's someone else is in control of you, that is not tolerable to you. So you went to these places where no one was in control and that was like, okay, this is more tolerable. I can incite him because I'm inciting him. And it, and it plays out in different ways through your story. One thing that I, I I'm always amazed about this because I, I talk to so many drug addicts, you know, and everybody has a different story and a different drug and whatever. And you had all this anxiety and, and unmanageability and whatever, and that weed, I mean, I can imagine why acid wouldn't do it for you, and that, and that pills like downers didn't do it, but meth relieved it. I know, it's interesting because you would think I would be drawn to the opiates or something that would calm me down. It's all neurochemistry though, right? Yes, I, I, you know, it just, I mean, meth, for me, it was the right fit immediately. And I had, I've done heroin and I was like, all right, well, that's fine. You know, it just, it, it wasn't like once I did heroin, I switched over to that. I did heroin after I had started seriously doing meth and I 
but wasn't really attracted to it. And so it is, I think, a biochemical thing. Um, but it almost felt like like a more intense version of myself. Like it was me intensified at a higher level because I I was always hyper. I was always considered high, you know, high energy, high strong. I was always really verbal. And so on meth, it was sort of like um, like an exaggerated version of me. So it felt it felt powerful. Yeah, yeah. And 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 when you first started doing it, were you just like, I want to be on this forever? I never thought in terms of forever. But one thing I will say is that if you would have told me I would become uh, addicted to it, I don't think I would have cared because I couldn't see the long term would have mattered to me as much as the short term. You know, I this makes me feel better now. I don't care what happens, you know, two or three years later. I don't think it would have mattered. And I don't think I would have, I mean, first of all, teenagers don't appreciate long-term risk as a general rule, right? But I was really focused on the immediate. How can I get relief today? How can I have a better day, a less stressful day today? You could have given me warnings up and down, and I don't think I would have listened to it. Right. How much were you doing at first? Like, and how old were you? So I started snorting it at 16 and when it first came around. Definitely within six months, I was shooting it. And then I almost exclusively shot it unless I couldn't get, you know, syringes for whatever reason. But I was, you know, pretty good at getting them. They were around. Somebody asked me, where did they come from? I have no idea. They were just there. <laughs> um, so I was doing it probably most days, except I, usually my pattern was I would do three days, stay up for three days, and then I would crash, and then I might take a day off, and then I would start up again. And that was my typical pattern. But sometimes I would do three days sleep for four hours and start. So I, it was really bad. I mean, people, other drug addicts were telling me that I was overdoing it within a few months of me first doing meth. But you're also this kid, this young, I mean, I only say young woman because you were womanly, but you were a child, you know? And uh, did you basically get it through sex? A lot of it I got through sex. Um, although, I mean, it's not like it was give me drugs, I, we have sex and I leave. You know, you're there for, for days, right? I mean, you had, these are relationships Absolutely. to a certain degree. Some of them were more honest friendships than others. Some of them were more, you know, quietly transactional than others. But some of them were, if I would have been sober, would I have picked to spend time with you? Probably not. But, you know, you have drugs. I, you know, I, I want the, the drugs. We, we will spend three days together and maybe we'll have sex for an hour and a half out of those three days. You know, we're doing a lot of other things, but a lot of it came that way. Yes. Totally. And, and in the book, you have a chapter that you called promiscuity. You have a chapter that you called sex. And I think it's very relevant to your story and also to the way your addiction played out. So do you want to talk about that part of it's because i think there's a lot of stigma against female drug users who use their looks and their sexual skills for drugs and it's a common way of life for women and young women and women who, who use substances and it's something that i don't think we should be ashamed of or that we should judge people for it's in pursuit of what's most important at the time which is our substance and people do all kinds of things in pursuit of their substance and that's one of them so i didn't want to hide it I wanted to be honest about it and to own it. Yeah, it's like it's like there's very little I could offer. You know, I wasn't a sexy 22-year-old when I was really, when my habit was really, st I, I couldn't really like convince anybody to hook me up on that level. <laughs> but I would manipulate in other ways. You yes. know what I mean? Like whatever I could do, if it's like talk about music, if it's to like make somebody feel like they're my friend, I would do it and it's not any different. It's just a different palette that we have to use to get what we want. That's right. And and I will say, I remember very clearly one time early on in a 12-step meeting that I went to where well, the, the male speaker referenced meth whore. 
And, mm. and I was, that really offended me. And I thought, who are you to judge us? You know, the, the women in the room, it, it felt like it was a sort of a denial about his own behavior when he was pursuing drugs, like you say. I'm sure he did things he wasn't proud of. And so it's, um, it's something that can follow people. And I know a lot of women in recovery struggle with it. They struggle with what they did sexually. And I wanted to just stand up and say it like, you know, it's, it's part of my story. It's a common story. I don't really feel that ashamed about it at this point. See, I think that's the most important part. And, and I was having a conversation the other day about shame. And like the things that I have shame about are weird and they're not what you would normally <laughs> expect somebody to feel ashamed of. And, and I think the fact that you can say that is very important. I mean, like for, for me, I was very proud of, I mean, I didn't get to have sex with as many people as I would have loved to have had sex with, but I was very proud of everybody I got to have sex with. And I didn't have to be shamed for my sex life. I, I was in fact rewarded for it. Yes. So, and that's fucking bullshit double standard. And uh, so I applaud you and I, I like that you say that. And, and I don't, and I think from reading the book that in those relationships, it was more like relationships. Some of them were, I mean, some of them were more like one night scenes. I mean, it definitely took a lot of risks. When I wrote the book, it really became a reminder of how lucky I am to be alive. For because sure. I would go with guys who maybe I had just met at the bar. I mean, they, they were known like they'd be a friend of a friend or something, not a total stranger, but still someone I didn't really know, someone who maybe wasn't well known by my people. And if they offered me meth, I would get in the car and go wherever. And I survived that, and I was lucky that I did. But a lot of them were ongoing relationships of guys in my town, people that I would interact with on a regular basis. Totally. And, and there is a thrill in getting drugs and in getting sex when you're a kid. It's thrilling as long as it's, and, and fun as long as it is. You know what I mean? And then sometimes it wasn't, right? I mean, for me, the sex... I wasn't really focused on having enjoyment out of the sex. I was using it as, I was more focused on his enjoyment, making sure he really enjoyed it than I really was focused on making sure I got pleasure out of it. And so that was my priority. But especially once I was using meth, I mean, I was sort of physically disconnected from my physical being when I was, you know, deep in the throes of my meth use disorder. It wasn't like I was connected to my body. I mean, I had track marks and bruises and abscesses, and I barely noticed them because I wasn't hyper-connected to my body. And it was the same with sex as time went on. When you were a teenager, though, your tracks weren't so crazy, right? Well, there was a summer, one summer I remember really clearly, because in, you know, in New Jersey, it's hot and humid in the summertime. But I had track marks, and I couldn't wear like a, a, heavy, a sweater because it would be odd. It's the summer. Why are you wearing long sleeves? But I had a bathrobe that was light, but it had three-quarter length sleeves. That entire summer, my mother never saw me if I wasn't wearing that bathrobe. So I did have track marks that I had to cover up. Was anyone like, why are you wearing the bathrobe, Mary Beth? No, no. They, I, honestly, I mean, I don't think they cared enough to pursue it unless um, I made it so obvious that they were forced to pursue it. My mother was finding spoons, strange spoons in the, in the silverware drawer, and she asked about them. And I just said, oh, you know, I was eating ice cream with somebody, and I, the spoon ended up in my purse. Like, really? I mean, does that sound like a good explanation? I love that. I love that. Because most people... <laughs> Most junkies are losing spoons. They're not finding them. I was accruing them, apparently. That's great. It's like, uh, for some reason in my house, we're missing forks all the time. And I'm like, this does not make sense to me. But, uh, and you also had had sex for the first time at a very early age, at like 13, right? At 13, yes. And when we talk about the chaos, you know, the chaos of drug addiction, the chaos of inciting an abuser to be abusive, 
how much do you think the sex is part of the thrill of like, oh my God, I don't know what's going to happen? Um, well, the first time was definitely something I really didn't want to happen. And it was somebody who was over 18. And how today, old was that guy? He was 18, 18 or 19. He was. And um, at the time, I didn't think of it as a crime. I actually thought of it as proof of my attractiveness, even though I didn't really want to do it. But I didn't say no. And, you know, the idea of consent is sort of a more modern idea. I didn't have it in my mind at the time. And so that was pro that was troubling to me, but I kept going after that. I just kept going. I mean, I, it was more about the sort of the, the power of getting the, what I wanted out of them than it was really about the enjoyment of the sex. But, and, and I'm just talking about like the chaos of it. Oh, do you yeah. think, do you think that the chaos was something that, that brought you to, or do you think it was just the self-esteem of knowing that you could do what you wanted and get people to like you and value you and want you or whatever? It was that, but it was also that I sort of didn't value my own body, right? I didn't really give it a high priority as something that I should be protecting or caring for or, or thinking about who should have access to it. It was really sort of just like something that was a tool that I didn't really put a high priority on myself. Um, but I did like, the, I did enjoy, I was attracted to chaos. I was attracted to people who were chaotic. I mean, later on, I moved in with a violent boyfriend and I knew he was violent before I moved in with him. And yet I did it. So there was a familiarity to it, but also there's a certain energy to that, right? There's a certain adrenaline aspect to it, not knowing what's going to happen, what the chaos is going to be, what people are going to do. It's, it's sort of a hyper attention to the interactions of people. So yeah, it was familiar and it was attractive to me. And I think um, one of the things that really surprised me was like, and I don't know why, but that you got into college at, an, at a normal time and that you just left. Like, it seemed very easy considering like, oh, let's talk about the arrest first. Yes. The, the first arrest. Like, give us the story of the first arrest. And, and when did your mother find out that you were shooting up? So by the time I started shooting meth, it was the beginning of my senior year of high school. So most of the grades that were going to get me into college had already You're, happened, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I really just had to do the applications. And, um, and I didn't really start missing a lot of school until the end of my senior year. But I had always been a good student, so they let me make up the work. My grades suffered, but not crazy. So I got accepted to go to UCLA. Later, I transferred to Berkeley, but it was UCLA. And in August, a month to the day before I was supposed to leave, I got arrested. I got arrested for hypodermics and meth. And so I had to put off college because I couldn't go. My court date was October, I think. So it was after I was supposed to go. That's when my mother found out that I was shooting drugs because I got arrested for hypodermics and charged with meth. That's when she found out. And you also uh, very, very nobly took the charge for your friend Bobby. I did. I was did. his real name Bobby? It, he, he was. There, some of the other Bobbies, I had to change their name because I left this Bobby with his real name. But Bobby had some of the meth was his, but he had, I knew he was on probation. He had recently gotten out of jail. And I really thought, they're not going to get, I'm not going to get in more trouble if it's all mine. And so I took, I took uh, the blame for all of it. You took the charge. I did. I took the charge. <laughs> and you, but, and you were, and you were applauded for it. Yeah, well, in my, I mean, yes, he, he, he sang my praises to, to the other drug dealers in town. So it did help my reputation in that way. Did you like walk into the bar like Henry Hill walking out of the courthouse <laughs> and everyone's like putting meth in your pockets and stuff? I wish, but I, I was a little nervous. I didn't know what the story was. But when I walked in the bar, people were like, yay, Mary Beth, Bobby told us, you know, and so that was helpful. Yeah, you were like you were like you were made. Yes, at that that's moment. right. That's right. That's you right. 
I, and, and it was just proof positive that I was trustworthy, right? Which is the reputation you want when you hang around drug dealers. I mean, I would steal drugs from some of these people when I could, but only enough that they wouldn't notice because I had my long-term interest at heart, right? But the charges were reduced for me. I, I really got an easy deal out of it. They reduced them down to disorderly person, which is like not even a misdemeanor. And so I just had to put off college for a year and they let me go a year later, even though I was still in probation. And not only that, but in my sentencing order, it said if I wasn't arrested again, I think it was three years, I could get my record expunged. And you did. And I did. So I didn't have to do the normal process where you have to file this application and all these letters from people, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was in my sentencing order. So I got a really easy deal out of it. Now that you're a judge and you were an attorney, do you think that that worked against you, the easy deal? Do you think if you had more hoops to jump through, it would have helped you? I don't think so. I don't think that criminalizing drugs is the way to get people nice. sober or in yes. treatment, right? Okay. I mean, well, you never know because like somebody who has to do, I mean, usually we just fuck it up, right? When we have to do 10 things to make sure that we don't have to, you know, go to prison or go to jail or whatever, we fuck it up and, and wind up going. But I bet you one out of like a hundred, they have to do something and it works for them. Yeah. It's not that it's not that it doesn't work for anyone. It's just not the most effective or cost effective or um, moral. Um, yes. <laughs> and, and, I, and I will say, I mean, the lawyer told my mother to try to get me into some kind of treatment. And so she did, you know, my mother was problematic, but she did try to find uh, somebody who she thought was was an expert. And she got me a psychiatrist at Princeton University. I went there. But I told him most of the truth about my drug use, and he just said that I had anhedonia and I needed antidepressants and that it would sort of magically go away. Nice. And it did not. Not for a while, at least. <laughs> not for another, well, that was 18, not for another 14 years. Right. But it was interesting, your transition from New Jersey to Los Angeles, because you kind of stopped doing meth. I mostly stopped doing meth. I mean, I was still doing other drugs, especially alcohol, and there were still chaotic and crazy incidents, but not doing meth really sort of helped me manage my life a lot better and to do well at school. Plus, I was working half time because my family doesn't have money. And so I did pretty well in college for the first three and a half years. Talk about the when you when you stopped shooting meth, though, in that period. So when I, went, when I went from New Jersey to California, I'm on a plane. I didn't know how well I would be searched, so I was afraid to take any quantity of meth. I took like a gram, you know, in my underwear or something, and that was it. And I didn't even take hypodermics because I was, I was worried about it. So when I got there, I crashed. I mean, I slept a lot <laughs> for the first couple weeks. But when school started, I was focused on trying to do well. But I, you know, I remember telling people some crazy stories about, you know, my, my, my life. And they were looking at me like I was really not within the sort of the normal UCLA student group uh, when I would say these things. So I didn't say that much. But I just started, I substituted it. I mostly used alcohol. There was some cocaine around. So I did that once in a while. There were pills. They were called loads. They were sort of like a heroin high. I did some of those. And I still had sort of crazy behaviors. I would do things like hang out of a window one time and I couldn't get my way back in. Or I left my friends in a bad part of LA one time and just, I literally just left and like hitchhiked a ride home. So I was still cre doing crazy, out of control, dangerous things, but I wasn't really using meth. Right. And that's when one of the scariest parts of, of your story happens. You're, you're in Los Angeles, you're going to UCLA and you're at the bus stop and this horrible van pulls up. I swear, like the book reads to me like one of those old 70s kind of movies 
like you're 13 on the beach and and like i see uh like i don't know like bad news bears style people <laughs> and stuff but it's like bad news bears on meth and and this is one of those situations you don't i as the reader you think you're just getting picked up by you describe him as like some dreamy dude with long brown hair or hazel sparkly eyes or something like that and then it it goes to the, the darkest place ever yeah, I mean, so they, they went around the block like three times, which should have been a clue to me, you know, but it wasn't. And I, I got in. I just band. thought they were really persistent to because he liked you. Right. Which is what you thought, too. Yes. And I was actually, you know, sort of like, look, there's other women around and he's picking me. Right. He's picking me out of the group. And so there was that sort of like uh, vanity thing. And, you know, they also sort of the van looked like a van I knew from my hometown in New Jersey. It was sort of a beat up, you know, old van. And that a lot of the guys I knew had vans like that. And so I had my guard down when I really shouldn't have had my guard down. And then I got in there and it was a kidnapping and there were three of them. And um, you get in and the guy in the back of the van puts a gun to your back. Yeah. Although I never saw the gun. It could have right? been a flashlight or something. Uh, it could have been. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Not there were three of them. Yes. And that, but I always knew I wasn't sure about the gun, but I wasn't sure it wasn't either. But there were three of them. And so that was um, that was really I did not think I was going to survive the night. I mean, once once he threw me to the ground and put the gun in my back, I didn't even know he was in the van. He was hiding in the back. That's really, it was a scary, scary description because all of a sudden you're sitting between the two guys on the seat and yes. then somebody grabs you from behind and we don't know anybody's in the van. You're right. And then, and then all you describe is that you're sure you're going to die. And I was. I really thought, okay. And it, it sort of was like I sort of always expected I would die in some crazy way like this. And so it sort of fit my expectations. But the good thing was that I think in part because of the abuse, I was actually able to keep my head and to think about how to handle this, you know, and to think about how to approach it. But it was it was six hours. It was a really long time. And there were moments during which I thought, okay, I'll survive it. And there were other moments like I'm not really sure I'm going to survive this. So it was a very roller coaster experience of never knowing if I'm going to get out alive. Yeah. And, and it's another place where it's like you decide in order to survive, you're going to do what they want. Yes. And you're going to not fight because you to self-preservation. And I think that's a good strategy, but it's it's a strategy that that damaged you. Yes, because, I mean, it's like when you see it in media, you're supposed to scream and shout. What's the point when you know no one's going to hear you and you know you're not going to get out? But the, the hardest moment for me was when they, they stopped for getting gas, and I thought about whether I could get away. Right. And I second-guessed the decision not to try for decades about whether I really – was it a form of giving up? Was it a form of not trying for my own survival? But when I wrote the book, it really helped me see that I had to trust that my – analysis in that moment was the right analysis. I'll never know all the nuances the way I knew them then. I'll never understand all the factors, but even thinking about it realistically, how, where he was sitting and where I was sitting and where the door was, I wasn't getting out. I wasn't going to get out. And it's like, what's better? You know what I mean? Yes. I mean, it's like you're dealing with, you know, like the tiger or the bear, you know what I mean? The hammer to the back of the head or getting shot. You know, it's not like, it's like you chose to not die and to not get physically, you know, beaten. Like, instead, you were raped by three men. And, and for me to even say it, I, I don't even feel like I have the right to say it because it's your story. I mean, it was that I thought, I thought it would be more physically painful if I tried and I failed, and I was pretty sure I was going to fail. And so it was really a balancing. Maybe if I don't try, 
I'll have a better chance of survival because they won't view me as somebody they have to control or as a threat to them in some way. And so that was a big part of it. Um, and I did think about them each sort of individually, like I watched their interactions. I mean, I was watching them. Who's in charge? You know, who's, who's, who's the head of this deal? Who wants to be here? Who doesn't want to be here? Who's sympathetic to me? Who's not sympathetic to me? And I tried to interact with them each based on my interpretation of who they were and what they're thinking and what they're feeling to try to make everybody sort of comfortable with me and happy with me and reduce my risk of death. It's the worst because it's another example of, of, you know, the drug addict's ability to measure a situation, manipulate to our advantage and to hope for the best. And it's the best in that you didn't get killed. You didn't get, you know, your eyes popped out of your head or your limbs broken. But it's the worst because the wake of it left you feeling like you were somehow complicit. Yes. And also that I didn't that I didn't get the license plate for the van. Right. I mean, that was the last thing, right? So when they let me go, I really I thought, like, look at the license plate. There's probably one. But I couldn't do it because I was still afraid they were going to shoot me in the back because I wasn't sure about the gun. And so I just ran. And, and again, I second-guessed, look, I got in the van. What if I went to the police? I got in the van. I didn't fight. They, I had bruises, but I wasn't really beat up bad. I did drugs with them. I, they dropped me off where I was originally going, in front of my friend's house. I don't have the license plate. How are they even going to find these people? So all of it was afterward on my shoulders. Oh, and I had this promiscuity history. If they ever went and asked anybody, right, I'm not going to be believed. And so I put it all on myself that it was I couldn't expect the authorities to do anything because all of my behaviors showed that I was somehow complicit in this. It's so horrible, and and one of the most powerful parts of the book. And I don't want to give away your book, but I, you know, I think people are going to buy it and love it. Is when you get to your friend's house and they're caring for you at all, like almost destroys you more than the rape because you, you almost like never got, you never really got that love and that connection. And and when you got a little bit of it, you were just you couldn't even move. You were devastated. Yeah, and it was always such a surprise to me if people reacted strongly to something that to me was in within normal parameters, you know, like like I, I was cutting for a while. And when I did that and someone else saw it, their shock at it really sort of it increased my understanding of sort of the, how outlier this behavior was, how self-harming the behavior was, how not part of the normal experience of others it was in, in a way that I didn't appreciate. I, I needed to see other people react to really appreciate the severity of the situation. Right. Also, though, I think it was you describe in the book like that you would watch movies and when you saw someone care about somebody, you'd, you'd start crying. That still happens now. I mean, if, if I see someone who's taking care of someone who's listening or noticing, I still struggle with tears about that because that's really deep down what I wanted since I was a little girl. Right. And you didn't, and you didn't get it. And, and in these moments, man, I, I just found that part of it to be so powerful when, when Paul is like cares and you, and you, after you've put yourself in this hell operating at a very high level. I mean, that's the other thing about this book, every situation, you have this brain where you measure every situation and, and you go through this computational kind of equation for every situation. Who is this person? What do they want? Who am I? And it's like all of this stuff. So you're on your toes, on your toes, on your toes. And then all of a sudden somebody cares and you, that's all gone. 
and all you are is emotional and on the floor. And it reminds me of that whole thing where they talk about connection is the opposite of addiction. Because like this thing that's so good and 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 loving, it's 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 all the bad stuff you can figure out how to deal with. The good thing you're defeated. That's true. It, it wipes me out. I don't understand it. I, I mean, even with my current partner, when he was nice to me, I would push for like. That chaos. reaction. Yes, for, for a, a strong reaction. I would push him in ways that I really knew he didn't want to be pushed because I couldn't really appreciate the niceness. It either floored me or I didn't believe it. You know, it wasn't um, it wasn't part of my normal experience and I had trouble. If, if it wasn't loud and chaotic, it seemed like it wasn't... Uh, real. Yeah, it wasn't real. It was like not enough. You, it's like, and I, I mean, I, I think because of your abuse and the trauma and then because we're addicts like we always need like the sound turned way up and the you know craziness for whatever reason and talk about after that gang rape like it's such a horrible two words to put together and you have to live with it talk about how you dealt that's when the cutting started right yes that's when the cutting started and it's also when i started dating the violent boyfriend and so both of those things was his name really martin yes why didn't you change anybody's name? I well, I did change some people's names. Okay. But <laughs> well, Bobby, for example, is dead. Right. You know? and Bobby so, with the sad eyes is dead. Yes, yes, yes. So a lot of the people aren't alive anymore. And Martin? Uh, Martin is um, probably dead. Um, but it was it, those were the two things that I reacted to. I actually thought I invented cutting. I didn't know other people cut. You know, and so our I, last guest thought she invented huffing. So that's funny. <laughs> um, and so I would buy bottled beer instead of cans so that when I got drunk enough, I would break the bottle and use it to cut. And it wasn't suicidal in any way. It was just for the blood and the pain. And then at the same time, I started going out with a boyfriend who, well, he wasn't violent in the very beginning. He was just chaotic. He was violent with other people. He was violent with other people. At first it was others. And then it turned to me. Can you please take us through cutting? Because we've never talked about it on the show. And I'm sure that there's a ton of listeners who've been through it a little bit or a lot. And I mean, for, for me, it was really about almost sort of visually seeing the pain. If I, if I cut with, with, the, with the glass, I would cut my arms, my uh, lower arms mostly, and uh, around my wrist. But seeing, it, it, it is painful. I mean, it hurts to cut yourself. And so there's that twinge of pain, but then there's the blood and there's doing it again. And it really isn't a, sort of an endorphin. You know, you're getting a chemical reaction to that in your body. So it feels like a bump, you know, it feels like a positive bump in a way. But it was also, to me, like sort of like a visible sign of my pain. I, I would hold my wrist up and watch the blood drip down my arm. You know, it just sort of, it felt like this is who I am. You know, this, this ripped open bloody arm is just sort of who Mary Beth really is at her core. And it was just a sign of it. But it, there is also the physiological side that you get sort of an endorphin bump from the cutting. Right. That you, or a dopamine bump. You were so wounded. Like yes. to see a wound is, is who you are. Yes. It's who I am. This and and then also you get to create the chaos. That's true. It was self-created. And, but then I, and I would hide it. Although one of the examples of someone noticing was I was working through college and I had my wristband because I really cut it bad one time and the, the supervisor noticed it. And I, again, it was that warmth that she noticed and cared, but of course I brushed her off and gave her an excuse. And so I didn't want to, wasn't able to look at it as an opportunity to get help. I just got the momentary positive and then pushed her away. Right. And, and after that, you, you, you wind up in Northern California in your punk rock phase, which I enjoyed. 
hearing about your punk rock phase in the book. Um, <laughs> and, and you meet this, this psycho drummer, Martin, and uh, you kind of like aren't doing drugs for a bit. I mean, I'm doing alcohol and we're doing like mushrooms and we're doing coke once in a while, but I'm not doing meth. I'm still not doing meth. And you're not like, I mean, I guess, were you drinking on a daily basis? No, I was mostly drinking. I was drinking to excess, but mostly on the weekend and occasionally it would roll into the week. And I know that you got high just getting into Berkeley because it's like basically <laughs> Ivy League for, for a not very wealthy kid and, and you're accepted. And it's like that's that I could tell just from the book how much you would love that. Well, and I will say it was one of the times where I did do something sensible, which was Martin. I had met him in L.A. He was going to one of the state schools in Northern California. He wanted me to come with him. And I did say I'll only go if I can get into Berkeley because I wasn't going to downgrade my college by following him. So I transferred from UCLA to Berkeley and uh and I ended up graduating from there. See, I think it's 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 another thing that's worth noting in this story is that your intellect, even though you're this horrible fucking drug addict, your intellect <laughs> was your north star even more than your addict. Yes, and it's one and I thought it would be the defining aspect of my life, but it really wasn't. The trauma ended up being, you know, the, the, the defining characteristic for most of it. I mean, we're talking about some of the good decisions I make, but the reality is, especially when after college, those last 10 years, I mean, my brain wasn't helping me hold a job for the last 10 years of my using, because I didn't get sober until 32. It's not like it was short-lived, right? I picked up meth again in the middle of my senior year, used until I was 32. I couldn't hold a job because I was using drugs you know, all the time. I wasn't getting there. I couldn't concentrate. I was shooting up in the bathroom. It got worse and worse and worse. And I couldn't really fully appreciate how much all of my problems were about my drug use. So being smart helped me up to a certain point, but it didn't really follow through all the way to being able to live a happy and productive life. Right. In those last 10 years of, of and those were the, the deepest and yes. darkest days because you, how did you, how did you afford it? First of all, I mean, I, you know, I had friends and so I was sort of getting it at wholesale prices, you know, that was part of it. And I would work for a while, but then I would get laid off and I would collect unemployment and then I would work again and get laid off and collect unemployment. And I was also not really paying much rent because I was living with my partner. So my expenses were low, but yeah, a lot of it was just knowing people who I got it basically at wholesale price. And your partner put up with a lot. He put up with more than he should have. I still don't really understand it. I mean, I told, I, I look, he used, but for, he was really just like, a, you know, a weekend kind of a guy, you know, here and there, occasional. Is his real name Doc? Yes. What's his real name? Robert. Well, how did he get the nickname Doc? Because he ran the radio station at Berkeley Calix and it, he was music director, MD, like Doc Severinsen. Was, nice. Yeah, nice. that's why. Okay. Yeah. And, and you describe meeting Doc and you describe him as like somebody you can deal with, but somebody that you also like to get high with. You describe him as emotionally kind of unavailable to a point, but still you live together. Yeah. I mean, he, he wasn't good and he still isn't really great about saying, you know, nice things. Like if I said, don't say I love you, he'll say, go look at all those Valentine cards you got or something. You know, he's still not like overt that way. He shows his affection by his behavior, um, not so much by his words, but he was more distant in the beginning. He, he Once he found out that I was really using more than he realized, and that wasn't until we lived together, then he really started getting scared and he would separate, but he would get overwhelmed with it. So if it were, if any sensible person would have seen how bad off I was once we lived together, they would not have kept me around for another like eight years, right? I mean, maybe a year or two, see if I could get it together, but he didn't. He let me stay and think I got worse and worse and worse. 
But it's also that up and down. Occasionally, I would get a little better for a while. I'd get a new job. I'd hold it for a while. Maybe get a little hopeful, and then it would crash to the ground again. So it was a very challenging experience for him. But it, for me, it was beneficial because I was living in a stable home. I, you know, I had a, a, a safe neighborhood. I had somewhere to go to. So it helped me throughout a long period of my drug use. Right, and, and I think I need to mention to the Dopey Nation that she also described her husband Doc as sexually dynamite. <laughs> and that is true. <laughs> I think that needs to be said. Um, and then also, I think it's interesting because Doc is like, you're fucked up. You're, you're a fucked up drug addict. You keep getting fired because you're a fucked up drug addict. And you're like, no, it's my trauma. It's my emotional distress. It's, it's like, do you think you were protecting your addiction or why were you in that denial? I, I was partly protecting my addiction, but I did, I was aware that my trauma was related to my drug use. I mean, I did see the connection. I really minimized a lot of my trauma. The only trauma I thought were the really high level events, like sort of the day-to-day -day stress of things. I didn't really understand the full impact of that until I got sober and was doing therapy. But, you know, I mean, I knew my stepfather had molested me and beaten me and the rape and all that. And I knew that was connected to my drug use, but partly I was also just pushing him away and trying to get distract his attention. But I don't, I didn't fully appreciate during those 10 years that my drug use was causing all of the times I was getting fired or all of the, or, you know, all of the other problems that would arise. I, I didn't fully appreciate it. I really didn't. I didn't see them as directly connected, you know, to the strong degree that they really were. Right. Yeah. I mean, you were in denial, whatever you want to call yes, it. Yes, I was. And then how long into the relationship with Doc before you told him about the rape or your stepfather or the beatings and, and all this stuff? I probably told him within like the first maybe one to two years, you know, but probably, but it would have been piecemeal. You right. know, things would come up bit by bit. I did have a really close friend in college, Gina, and she and I shared everything. And so, and she had a similar history to me, both from the trauma side, but also from the drug use side. And we were basically in the same place. We we're both at Berkeley together, despite all that. So Gina, I know I shared more of the details than I would have probably shared with Doc. I probably would have told Doc something general, whereas with Gina, I would have gone more, more immersively into the experience. And you, you, you described Gina as having had the exact same experiences. And it, it, it almost reminded, it, I almost thought that you were gonna get sober with her, like, cause it, it reminds me of the way people in 12 step will talk about meeting somebody in 12 step and sharing the same story. And all of a sudden, because they, they divulged their soul, they got better, but that's not what got to happen. No, that's not what happened. What was the end? How did you wind up getting sober? I mean, when I was 32, so I've been using for 20 years and I've been using meth basically for most of 15. And I was, my body was starting to have a lot of problems. I was having physical problems. Um, Doc was ready to throw me out. And I was so emotionally devastated and, you know, fatigued beyond fatigued. I couldn't even get it together to get another resume together when I got fired. And so it was all of that combination that really made me say, well, okay, what if I go into rehab, Doc? Will you, will you not throw me out if I go to rehab? And I, in my mind, I'm thinking it's sort of a break from everything else. And he was like, he was like, yes. Yeah, go. But, but he wasn't making any promises of what was going to happen when I got out. But yeah, you, you need to do that. See, I love, I mean, I think it's interesting because everyone wants to know the answer to how they stop. And it's like, it's always some weird and magical thing. Like somebody else might have just lost Doc stayed using, turned up somewhere else, and the next thing happens, and the next thing happens, and then something else is the thing. I mean, I got sober when I was 41, and, and, and there was a lot of 
build up. Like I had a lot of bottoms along the way, you know, as, as a lot of us tend to do. And there is no one reason no. that happened then. No. And, and also I didn't think that I could actually get sober. Like that was, that was beyond my imagination. I thought I'll go into rehab. I'll have a break. I'll, I'll pay it, you know, I'll try. Right. But maybe I can learn how to use less. Like it wasn't that I wanted right. to keep using, but that was the best case scenario that I could imagine was figuring out how to use less. And then that would pacify him and that my life wouldn't be as chaotic and maybe I could hold a job for a while. And you could still enjoy drugs. <laughs> Except I wasn't thinking of it as enjoying because it wasn't really enjoying for a long time. It was sort of surviving. It wasn't like I was having, you know, great highs like in the early days. Of course. I mean, that was my final analysis is I'll never get as high as I did. <laughs> right. It's never going to happen. <laughs> never. It will never happen. But the interesting thing to me is if you say, I would like to not really give it up, but you also say in the same breath, I didn't enjoy it. Like, what's the disconnect there, you think? Because I thought that I really had three choices because of my pain and my trauma. I thought I can either use drugs or I'm going to commit suicide or I'm going to get committed to a mental institution. Like, I really believe those were the three options on the table. But the other thing is, I'll say, I think it's a sort of a false paradigm that most people go into recovery 100% sure that they want it. I think for most people, it's a process to really figure out that it's something that is valuable, but also it's something that maybe an option on the table for you and that you could actually figure out how to do it in the long run. I mean, that's why what you're talking about in meetings, finding, hearing stories similar to your own can be part of that process of realizing, oh, somebody like me has actually gotten sober, then maybe I could figure out how to do it too. So it wasn't when I went in, I didn't want to keep using. I just didn't believe it was possible for me to completely stop. Yeah, I had a similar, a similar feeling. It was just, I knew that if I, I couldn't do a little, like I couldn't do a little, like in the end, I just, there was never, it was never going to happen like that. I couldn't do a little, I couldn't do one day. I couldn't do a morning or an evening. I, I wasn't like that. And that's when I was like, I need to be done. Another thing about your, your book and just your brain that I really love is how defiant you were when you got to treatment and you were like, I'm not fucking doing 12-step recovery. I, I don't believe in God. I, 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 I didn't believe in God either. I was if I need it, I'll do it. That, that's, I was like, I can fit a circle peg into a square hole. I can do it. And, and for me, God became everything. There was no Jesus or whatever. It's just, that's, yeah, I need God, fine, I'll do it. But you were like, fuck you. I'm not doing that. I can figure this out. Can you please walk us through that? Yeah, so when I went into rehab, they swore the 12 steps is the one and only way. And it wasn't just the higher power, although I, I, I don't believe in a higher power, but it was the turning your will and your life over things. So yeah, even yeah. if I could have like formulated one, I was not going to turn over my will in my life. It's science fiction. How do you do that anyway? <laughs> it's crazy. It's a crazy thing that you need to be so desperate to do. And you weren't that desperate, but you're fucking smart. And you were like, I'm going to figure this out my way. That's like the last line of your book. You quoted my way. I almost cried walking up here, reading the last line of your book that you quoted my way. But not everyone, I, I couldn't do it my way. I needed like Ikea fucking, this is how you build a, a desk. Walk us through it, please. Yeah, and I'll say, I mean, I support 12 Steps when it's a good fit, and that structure is why a lot of people like it. But for me, I- I, I hated it. I didn't like it. I just needed to, I needed something. I- 
I really, I knew I couldn't believe in the higher power. I, I didn't like agreeing I was powerless. I didn't like to focus on defects. But at the same time, they told me there was no other way. I believed them because they were the experts and that's what they told me. So what I decided to do was to just sort of be proactive and read and absorb everything, but filter it through what do I think is going to help me and just ignore the other parts. And so, I mean, I read all the big book. I read all the NA text. I was actively participating in rehab classes, but I modified a lot of the ideas or I rejected them. Like that powerless, what you were talking about, you can't do a little. I mean, I didn't agree I was powerless over my addiction, but what I thought about it and I said, well, you know, what I can agree is Mary Beth is powerless to moderate. <laughs> like there's no moderating for right, me, right? Right, right. I mean, so I did that. I reframed and reformulated them and pulled out the parts I think I thought that I could use. See, I mean, like it, I, I didn't consider powerlessness until the end. And, and I was just like, I give up. In the end, I, I wasn't like, I didn't like the idea of powerlessness. I didn't understand unmanageability versus my life. And all the stuff you're talking about, I was like, I mean, fuck you is an easy answer for me when I'm sitting here with you. <laughs> and it was my answer for my entire time using, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to do what you guys do. I don't want to do any of this. It just, it just, I needed something and it was there. And I liked the people at the room and the people at the room didn't care if I talked about heroin and they didn't care if my God was their God. And it, and, and, and my, my father was like, you're, he, he didn't say you're a fucking idiot, but my father thinks anybody that has God is an idiot. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, so I think it's, it's a fun thing to talk about, especially on the other side of it, you know, where you, you obviously, if somebody gets sober in AA or NA, you're like, great. And if, and I'm like, if somebody doesn't, it's like, great. It's like, but what, what did you do? Like, how did you get enmeshed in your recovery? I and mean, when I got out, I actually did the research. I went to the library because it's 94 and there's no internet, right? And it turns out there were other options. They just hadn't told me about them. And so I found Women for Sobriety, which is the first modern secular recovery peer support group. And they're focused on self-empowerment and releasing the past and, you know, and, and women building themselves up uh, rather than being beat down. So hold on, Women for Sobriety, women for it was sobriety. the first secular recovery group. For, yes. And Why they, do you suppose it was a women-based group? Well, the founder, and they still exist, by the way, I speak at their conferences, but the founder, Jean Kirkpatrick, she felt that the 12 Steps focuses on sort of beating down your ego, and she felt like women have all been already so beaten down. What mm. they need is to be built up. Right. And so the focus is on building up, they, it's called the four C's, capable, competent, confident, and compassionate women. That was the goal. So she felt women needed to be built up and to have their positive attributes and to be the focus rather than on whatever mistakes they may have made. And so that's why she created the program. And that's awesome. Yes. And so I did those, again, wrote to PO boxes, called 800 numbers. I got their books, went to their meetings. And then I found Rational Recovery, which exists a little, but basically has evolved into Smart Recovery today. And they were focused on relapse prevention. And they taught that your own will was a positive. Not what they told me in rehab, which is that I was running on self-will run amok. It was a Self-will right? run riot. That, yes, that's negative. I still didn't even understand what that meant. Rational recovery felt that you could recover based on your own free will. And then I found a secular organization for sobriety, which exists a little, but has basically evolved into life ring secular recovery. And I'm on the board for life ring. And they focus on rational decision-making, mutual support, and each person being responsible for her own recovery, but also personal recovery plan that my recovery plan and someone else's recovery plan, they're not going to look the same because we're in different places and we have different needs and different styles and different approaches. And so I, 
I did the same thing I'd done with 12 steps. I went to the meetings and I read all the materials and I synthesized them into the ideas that I thought would help me and built a program that worked for me. But it's also built and adjusted over time, right? Sure. Because that's part of what it is. The plan changed as I was having some initial accomplishments. And so I was always looking for what's the right next step? What should I be doing next? I feel like you as this motivational constantly searching, constantly learning, constantly achieving person that your plan was perfectly suited to that. I think I was so lazy and scrubbed out. <laughs> I just needed a place to show up. But then it was like, either you're going to get it in motion or you're not. And if you don't, it doesn't work. And I don't think that, I think what I'm hearing, my father hates it when I listen to somebody and then I surmise something. I, I don't know why he doesn't like that I do that. Isn't that what I'm supposed to do? But when I'm, help me with this. It sounds like your follow through is what got you together. Well, I mean, it turned out that even though the truth is they put my recovery at risk when they told me there was only one option and it wasn't a good fit for me, that I could have just given up. Like, I can't do that. So why try? But in the long run, it, it was served me well because doing that sort of analysis and research and making choices and setting priorities and goals and plans, it turns out those skills apply to all the rest of my life besides just my substance right. use recovery. So it did really build up my skill set, build up my confidence and my competence to be able to make other decisions and to be able to build plans for the other areas of my life. It was in the long run, it was advantageous. Well, it's, it seems to me like in recovery, everything we do is, is very transferable to every other aspect of our lives. But it's like the universal nature of life, that like one thing that you do that's good in one area probably will work in most areas. Yeah, well, and the other thing is, I mean, when we're talking about substance use recovery, it's really the bigger picture is rebuilding your entire life. Well, depending. I mean, first of all, I will say that I see more people come in today that, for example, still have jobs or aren't know, totally fucked. They're not. And that's great because that's to their advantage. But if you've destroyed your life like I have, for example, I had to set a list of priorities because I made a list of everything I needed to work on. And it was way longer than I could possibly work on on day one. Right. So I had to make choices about what my first priorities were and work on those and just let everything else slide for a while. But then it evolved over time. But even if you do 12 steps, it sort of is what you're doing. You are also attacking your whole life and not just attacking your sobriety. And so you're right. It, it is all transferable for all of us, no matter which program or which programs, because mixing and matching is an option. I love that. It's, it's also just like little accomplishments, yes. little things like you can't get it all back at once. It's, it's almost impossible. And if you do, you're going to lose it just as soon as you got it back. Like if you hit the lottery on day one and you're like, my life is set, you know, you're totally <laughs> fucked if that happens. Well, that's true. And I, I will say I had to really learn how to notice the small successes because I was always naturally focused on my mistakes or my failures or my losses. And so I literally had to sort of pause myself and make myself look backwards. Like, look what you've done in six months or a year to really see it and appreciate it and build up that sense that I was moving forward. And that was really helpful. So it was a lot of techniques like that that, that worked for me, the prioritizing, the setting specific goals that, you know, the revising the plan, but also really noticing that I was accomplishing something helped me feel more, more optimistic about my future. Right. The, the victories, the victories play out. Yes. And, and that, and then that there was no sign I had sort of peaked out yet because when I got sober, I was 32. I thought I was old. I felt old. Like I had wasted, I had wasted my life. I had wasted my education 
And it was hard to be realistic about like what my first job was going to be or where I was really at. Um, I felt like I could get a little better, but I wasn't ever going to have the future I could have had if I would have been sober when I graduated college, for example. Right. And you had dropped out of law school while you were using, right? That was that was the story. I went to um, Berkeley Law right after college. But remember, I picked up meth again in January of my senior year. So by the time I it's got quite there, the, quite the time. Yeah, I was not able to do it. And so I, I did do it properly. I withdrew. I f filled out the right papers and I withdrew. But it was an agonizing loss. I mean, to have had a top 10 law school in my hand and have to give it back because of my addiction. And I knew that was why it was it was horribly painful. I hated driving by that building. It was terrible. It's so funny, though. It's like you describe how fucked you were and you were in Berkeley Law I know. and you're shooting math. You know what I mean? It's it's all like a sliding scale yes. uh, of everybody's fucking fuck ups or whatever. <laughs> I really and I, I the most amazing part is that is that Doc stayed with you. I know. It's weird. I know. Well, well we, it was a lot of work. I mean, we did couples counseling, of course, but and I did a lot of individual counseling and I was in a group for Trump, people, women with trauma histories, which was really eye opening for me. That actually was a massive uh, step forward in my recovery. And I did meds for a while. But yeah, we worked hard in therapy and out to stay together. And we are still together all these many years later. Well, I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your book and you coming down. And I'm going to ask a stupid question. Do you have a fucked up drug story that you can think of that you'd, that you'd want to share, like a specific one? Well, I, <laughs> one of the fucked up things that I did, that even my, my sister who struggled with drugs were like, oh my God, about, was um, I was really getting a lot of abscesses toward the end. And also I was shooting my legs because my veins were terrible. And so I had to, I had to go downward and where the bigger veins were in my legs. And I was getting abscesses. And so what I would do is I would take the, the needle, you know, I put alcohol in it and I would poke the abscess so that I could drain it. You know, and this was just like a normal part of my day. I mean, this maintenance. Is, yes, it was just maintenance. So it's right. I, it was just a normal part of my day. And I'm sure, you know, when, when other drug addicts like give you that horrified look, you know, you know you've crossed the line. <laughs> you have crossed the line. I had terrible veins too. And I, I think I did that. I had an abscess right there that I think I did that too. But I was never like, a mechanic on my absences. I knew I was making a big mistake. And I, it, I remember you, when you described that in the book, you kind of like, were like, I know what I'm doing. I know how to drain an abscess. Come on. Right. Well, you figure it out, you know, you figure it out. Well, Mary Beth, it's been an honor and I really appreciate you sharing so much and, uh, and being so candid. Well, thanks for having me. I really have enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> That's Mary Beth O'Connor. Her book is called From Junkie to Judge. Get it. It really is a crazy, a crazy story, a crazy look at a, at a drug addict in recovery's life. And I also really thought it was awesome that she didn't recover through 12-step and she was so methodical in her own path. And I think that is really hopeful for people who are very resistant to 12 steps. So congratulations, Mary Beth O'Connor. Congratulations to everybody. Congratulations to everybody who follows the 12 steps. I don't even know why I'm going down this path. I got an email. I want to read another email. We're going to get to my dad soon with the outcome of this horrible fantasy basketball. What happened with Seymour? But I want to read an email and I have a voicemail. But here we go. First, and they're both old time dopes. First is an email. I'm sure you guys remember the exploits of crouching tiger hidden crackhead. Uh, one of our very favorite uh, dopes, he calls himself 
Johnny Socket, Hey Dave, and the Dopey Nation. He, he's got a lot of a lot of nicknames. It's Johnny Socket, aka the Plugs Plug, aka Crouching Tiger, Hidden Crackhead. Here's a little relapse story for you. I have another relapse story from about two years ago, but this is the most reason. So let me first preface this by saying I was Suboxone sober, and then only taking Suboxone. My uncle died in June, and it really got to me because I had a real connection with him. He took me in when I was in one of my lowest points of my life and let me work at his company doing carpentry with him. Being an addict himself, I felt he understood me more than other family, even though my other family are all some kind of addicts. Anyway, after his passing, I was devastated, and I felt guilty for not being able to see him in the hospital before he died. I ended up going on an encrypted account that people can sell drugs on. They even have drug menus and everything, lol. I was skeptical at first until I saw the reviews people were leaving, but I was still slightly skeptical. So I ordered a small order of some benzos that I can't remember the name of right now, but apparently they're only prescribed in Canada. I moved here from Canada and they think I'm slow, eh? After receiving a gram of fentanyl because they, they were sold out of heroin, I also got a bunch of foil packs of Soma and a few Subutex. I told myself I would go through all these drugs secretly without my girlfriend or family knowing. And when I finished, I would take the Subutex and then go back to my regular Suboxone. But that was basically a pipe dream, just something I was telling myself. I was keeping everything in my car so my girlfriend wouldn't find it. But one night I brought the fentanyl and bars and clonopin inside with me. And she came home and saw me passed out on the bedroom floor with my ass in the air. She kicked me and was like, what the fuck? She then found the bottle or mixed of mixed benzo pills and threw them in the toilet. Even though I denied that's what they were and denied being high, I even tried to convince her to give me the bottle of pills so I could look at them to see what they were, lol. I was just trying to get back control of them. She took them to the toilet and dumped them, in, dumped them out in the bathroom and she saw my spoon and needle and that rightfully so became another big deal. I told her that's everything I had, but I really still had fentanyl, meth, soma, and subutex in the car. So the next night on the way home from work, I pulled over and did a shot of meth and finished the fentanyl. The next thing I know, I'm waking up to a police knocking on my window because I was parked in the middle of a three-lane busy road. I tried to talk my way out of it. It was a horrible altercation to which I still have the body cam footage from the officers. I was arrested and charged with DUI, possession of methamphetamine, buprenorphine, and paraphernalia. They didn't find the Soma. I went to jail for the night, and my girlfriend bailed me out. And now at this point, about nine months later, and multiples uh, of thousands of dollars, I got the buprenorphine dropped, charge dropped, and got withheld of adjudication on the felonies and put on felony probation. I butchered that word. I apologize. So once I finish probation, I won't be a felon. It's been about nine months since then, and even though probation really sucks, I'm back to being clean, suboxone clean, and I'm doing what I can not to slip up into that life. I'm still recovering, but we do recover. All of us can if we work at it. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Toodles for Chris, and shout out to Fentanyl J. Thank you, Johnny Socket. It's like, um, I love that email. I appreciate you sending it in. And I, it makes me think of this post somebody in Dopey Nation had made about uh, about Todd's death, which was that if Todd hadn't died, it would have been just another funny Dopey story. 
this story reminds me so much of Chris's relapse, you know, keeping the drugs in the car, uh, Johnny's girlfriend finding him, uh, but Johnny happened to live, so he can send in a voicemail and we can enjoy the story. He's not dead. So just be careful, because a lot of these stories, more and more, as we all know, are ending in death. And, uh, you know, I appreciate Johnny Socket. I appreciate his slew of nicknames and, and the amount of his relapse and just his his life and, and everybody's life and everybody who contributes to the Dopey Nation. But the flip side is you take a little bit too much of something and you're gone, and we know that because of everybody that we've lost. So I just want to rain on Johnny's parade and rain on all of your guys' parade and mention that the Dopey Foundation, our new 501c3, is currently sending out free Narcan and free fentanyl test strips. If you want any, please email me at dopeypodcast at gmail.com and I will ship them out. I got another uh, message from an old school dope. Their name is Aubrey. They have been listening to the show forever. And after many, many years, uh, Aubrey finally sent in a voicemail. And in celebrating Mary Beth O'Connor's meth addiction, here is Aubrey's meth story. Hey, Dave, it's your uh, favorite boy from Akron. Um, I have a short and sweet story for you about the week-long endeavor in which I thought I would see if I liked meth. Um, Basically, from the time I was seven to the time I was 19, I was prescribed medical meth in the form of the amphetamine one and also the methylphenidate one um, because I'm neurodivergent and teachers didn't like that. So they said, something must be wrong with me. Put your kid on drugs. Um, When I graduated high school, I was like, why the fuck am I still on this shit? And around that same time, too, the cost of my prescriptions went from $20 a month to $525 a month because the local pharmacy shut down and was bought out by CVS. So I just started selling my pills to my tweaker friend. Um, And my tweaker friend was getting evicted. So I was already kind of detoxed from the fucking pills and uh, they were getting evicted because their landlord didn't like that they smoked meth. And I was like, all right, I'll help you move. Also, I want you to pay me in meth. I want I want to I want to do meth. And the whole reason I told myself that I wanted to do meth was because I wanted to be able to stay focused enough to write some essays to try and get scholarships and get into college. Which is very silly. Um <laughs> Uh, so I fucking helped this dude move, and the house that I was helping them move into was this, like, house that was just treated like shit because it was owned by a trust fund baby who was also a tweaker, and everyone in the house was a tweaker, and the guy who owned the house was this, like, belligerent racist who basically took in all the homeless tweakers and then, like, would beat them and just, like, treat them like shit, and be like, don't you forget, I'm housing you. It was like just like very fucking predatory and weird. So we get there, and there's like this moldy pile, like mountain of fucking dishes on the kitchen, and there's a moldy pile of fucking dishes in the bathtub. Everything's just like a mess. Um, there's like rats, like just openly running around the house. 
And uh, this dude that just like randomly starts screaming slurs and hitting people. Um, and uh, so I decided, okay, like, let's smoke meth. And I do. And I went back a few more times that week to help my friends settle in and check in on them. And also because I wanted to smoke more meth. Uh, I ended up being up for about five days straight. And instead of writing these college essays that I was so ambitiously going to to write, I uh, I got really good at solitaire on my phone, and I could <laughs> I could like finish a game in less than a minute. And I also finished a majority of It's Always Sunny, and I ate two whole jars of peanut butter. And I I never I never wrote any essays. Um, and I've not been to college since. Um, such as the the plight of the working class and. Uh, dipshits that fucking think meth will get them into college and then didn't stay strong dopey nation and uh don't do anything too fucking stupid toodles for chris thank you aubrey i think aubrey was listening to uh brown-eyed women by the grateful dead am i right aubrey and i appreciate the story about how aubrey smoked meth to get into college and if you guys have a good story Either record it on your iPhone with the voice memo tool and email it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com or write it out and email it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And now it is time. And Aubrey, you get free dopey socks. And whatchamacallit, Johnny Socket gets free dopey socks. And if you want free dopey socks, send in a story to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And somebody else that probably wants... Free dopey socks is my dad, and we're calling him up. Hello. Hey, Dad. Hi. Okay, so you're back on the show. Everybody wants to know how the basketball, the fan. Well, first of all, how are you doing? Uh, well, I think I overdid walking, and then I went to the golf driving range and I overdid that I need I need to be more as I keep saying be more moderate I need to rest all right dad nobody really cares about that what everybody wants to know is how the fantasy basketball ended and where is Seymour at in the standings and where are you at in the standings all right well I'm glad you asked well the last time that I reported to the dopey nation it was 61 to 61 with a tie um uh, no, it was I was up 61 to 60. I had 61. Seymour had 60. But the next day on Saturday, he tied me at 61-61. And then Sunday was the last day of the season. And because of my amazing strategy, I played a lot of players. And it wound up, wound up final results, Allen 62 Seymour, 59, and I got second place sewed up. So what I want to know is you had mentioned to me that if you and Seymour had tied, what was his strategy there? Uh, I thought that if we would have tied, I would be declared the second place winner because I actually scored more points than him in terms of the point totals that the team put together. And he he was trying to figure out a way of changing that rule so that it, it didn't it wouldn't have happened. So are you saying that Seymour diabolically 
wanted to use his power as commissioner to nullify what would happen if you had gotten into a tie. That's that's correct, except I don't think even that the rule even exists and that it probably would have been a tie. And I'm also the co-commissioner, so I could have figured out a way of how to block his blocking. Anyway, it didn't it didn't happen. And it's funny, though, because during the season, we talked about different scenarios of what would happen. And we and I kind of predicted that Daryl would would Seymour's son would come and win. Didn't I predict that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think we all figured that out. He got 70. I was in second place with 62. Um, and oh, Seymour, and by the way, Seymour, and you... Seymour was in third place with 59, and, and how? where was I in the cellar on fourth place? Well, you were in fourth place. You're not in the cellar. But what, what, 10 but what, what, how many points did I have? Oh, I don't remember. Uh, 49, I think. So I was, like I was, I was two points behind Seymour, or ten. No, ten. Oh yeah, yeah. Anyway, so so you're saying you're exercising too much. You're satisfied with sewing up second place, and I just want to be clear about something else. Do you win anything for second place in this fantasy basketball league? Yeah, it was amazing. I, you know, I, I got a message from the fantasy basketball league congratulating me for my strategy and my draft picks and for coming in second place. It was really very funny. Wait, who wrote you an email? The, the, the actual ESPN fantasy people. Oh, dad, that's chat GPT. That's artificial intelligence. No, 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 no. It was, it was on fantasy basketball and it was a little video with, I mean, it, it's done for every second place finisher, I think, and maybe even every third place finisher. So it was very, it was very cute. I should send it to you. Well, I didn't get anything. So wait. So what? I know you finished fourth. But did you win any money? Did Daryl win any money? No, just in no, case, no. just in case the Dopey Nation thinks that you might have won something here. What did you win? No, I I just want to make sure that David Mascolani knows there's no gambling involved with this. There's no money whatsoever. This is just pride on the line. That's is all. is it possible? that it's gambling even if there's no money? No, I don't think so. No, there's no, I mean, nothing is winning except my, my self-esteem. That's all that won. And let me ask you this. What was the name of your league? Seam Al. So if, what if someone in the Dopey Nation next year wants to join the Seam Al League? Maybe they can take my spot. Oh yeah, that that would be interesting. I mean, we 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 set it up and we 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 try to get ten teams. And if we need anybody to fill it, of course, that would work as long as somebody is serious. All right. Well, very good. Congratulations on second place, Senor D. I I, I made an amend to Senor Dios Mio for last episode, calling him a maniac and that he's probably going to kill you at some point. He's not going to kill you, but maybe he wants to kill Seymour. Everybody really. Really no, rallied. Stop that, Everybody really rallied against Seymour. I don't know what happened there. No, listen, that's that's not good with uh, this group psychology, etc. No, leave Seymour alone. He's wonderful. He's wonderful, and I beat him this year, so he's he's suffered enough. <laughs> All right, so so I want the Dopey Nation to to put their guns down away from Seymour. Seymour is really a very, very wonderful guy. He's very sweet. He's one of my dad's oldest and dearest friends. He's only been good to me, although 
He has had some crazy megalomania around this fantasy basketball league, but so have you. You guys are sick, sick people with this thing. Well, it's over until next year. So, oh, and the Knicks are in the playoffs, though. So that's good. Very exciting. The Knicks and and Cleveland are going to start next week. I'm incredibly excited about that. Now, Dad, you and I had a little bit of a fight recently about your criticism on the show. I was too thin-skinned and couldn't handle your assessment. I've developed a thicker skin since the last time you've been on. So we're going back to the well. Do you have any criticism? And I need you to be honest. What's your criticism of late? All right. So here's a big announcement. You ready? Oh, God. I don't have any criticism. I don't believe it. I think you're just scared. You don't want to fight with me. I don't. No, no criticism. No, no, I don't. And I'm glad you got a thicker skin. Yes. No, no ums, no likes, no me trying to make sense of what the listener says, the way interviewers are supposed to do. And and for some reason you think I'm showing off when I do that. Nothing, Dad. No criticism. I have no criticism at this moment. At this moment. Is it because you don't want to fight with me? No, I, I can't find anything to criticize yet. I mean, maybe maybe you'll screw up on the next episode. Who knows? All right, that's terrific. Um, do you want to read any reviews before we're done? Well, I, 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 I want you to comment on this one because uh, this is kind of weird. Did you see that there that it says, I'm back by Joey Pepper, 77? No, I did not see it. That's a new review. Yeah, April 10th. Oh, boy. I'm back. Five stars. Yes. So you see it now? No, I'm not. Okay, I'm, I'm not looking at it, but hold on. I'll, hold on. I'm going to look at it just so I can make sense of this because I know you have a hard time knowing what's happening in the world of reviews and emails <laughs> and stuff. I know that it's Okay, difficult. but you're going to criticize me, though. Yes, that's a big part of That's a big component of the show. Um, yeah, you're, you, listen, I'm, let, I'm seriously, this is carte blanche. Whatever, whatever you think, this is the time. I'm not going to get upset. And if I get upset, it's okay. We can survive that. What is your opinion? No, no, no. I, I told you. I'm, I'm not going to criticize anything this week. I don't have anything. Oh, God. Here we go. Read right, it. I come see on. It. Do the Joey read, 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 read it. Okay. Uh, episode 401. This episode really got me. Made me cry. Wow. Haven't listened to Dopey in a while. Something told me to check it out again. I kind of scanned over the episodes. This stood out to me, so I click on it. Listen to Dave ramble on with ads. I don't know why I kept listening, because that's when I usually give up on Dopey, during the 15 minutes of ads. But I kept listening. This is one of the only Dopey... Oh, yeah, yeah, my computer just went. (laughs) This is one of the only Dopey episodes that got to me. But, man, it got me. Five stars by Joey Pepper. Fucking Joey Pepper, man. I swear to God. That was the Tim Lodgen episode. Uh, he was great, Tim Lodgen. The guy, remember the guy from Baltimore? He was the military guy, the mixed martial artist. He is like suicidal. Oh, yeah. yeah, Joey Pepper's yeah. A, Joey Pepper's a sucker for a schmaltzy story. But Tim Lodgen was great. So thank you, Joey Pepper. He's I guess Joey Pepper's back in the fold. And, you know, if you don't like the ads, fucking skip the ads. Like, you don't need to listen to the ads. And it's not 15 minutes anyway. I don't know. He was exaggerating. Joey Pepper, man. He, he, he also wrote nasty things about Dopey on other podcasts' reviews. That's how, 
That's how deep it got with Joey Pepper. But honestly, I'm happy that Joey Pepper is back in the fold. You know, we have a song, um, a dopey song that um, Jake from West Virginia put together called Tune On Into The Dopey Show. And he says to Joey Pepper and the great Cormac in that song. So I, know. So I like Joey Pepper to, to leave a nice positive review. And I hope Joey Pepper's doing well. I know you hate Joey Pepper, though, Dad. No, don't say that. Listen, no, I don't. I don't have hate uh, for anybody, right? Well, I don't want to say anybody. I don't have hate for anybody. What do you mean, no, nobody, Dad? What about New York City, Sarah? No, I mean politicians. You know, politicians or, or or people in the country who aren't doing things that's supposed to be doing. I I mean, it, I wouldn't call it hate, but certainly. Total disappointment. So, Dad, if you were to say in your lifetime, who have you hated? Anybody? Well, uh, listen, in my in my lifetime, I think Hitler was alive when I was still alive, but I was a baby at the time. So I guess maybe I didn't hate him, but I certainly hate what what happened. Uh, no, I'm talking I about I'm talking I about the active I'm talking about the active what? action of hating someone. Have you ever hated someone in your lifetime? No. See, that's a great thing, Dad. That's that's you're it's you're a very good man, and I love you very much, and uh, and we love you, Joey Pepper, and uh, we need reviews. It's exciting. I didn't see that review, so it's a it's one of those synch synchronous. Is that a word? Synchronistical. What's the word? Synchronous. That's pretty good. You, you created two new words that are both good. Excellent. What is a word for that? What you just said, synchronicity. You don't think synchronous is a word? I don't know about synchronous. No. Synchronistical? But, That's not synchronistical. Nice synchronistical is not a word. Um, we'll say synchronous. I'm glad Joey Pepper's back. I'm glad you came on the show as soon as that review showed up. Uh, thank God Tim Lodgen did a good enough show with us that Joey Pepper liked it. Um, I think you're going to like this week's show, Dad. It's a woman who uh, was a meth addict and she became a judge from New Jersey. I told her that the only people that you hate were the people from New Jersey. That was in the show. Uh, that, again, that's not true. I mean, what I don't like about New Jersey is their, is their traffic rules. And the fact that they they drive like they were from New Jersey in Manhattan, where they do things that they shouldn't be doing in Manhattan, like making right turns uh, on red lights when it's totally against the law in New York City to do that. So when you see a bad driver in New York City, do you or do you not look at their license plate, assume they're from New Jersey, and when they are, say something negative about people from New Jersey? That's pretty true. Yeah. Okay, very good. Thank you, Dad. Uh, thank you, Mary Beth O'Connor. Thank you, Johnny Socket. Thank you, Aubrey. Thank you, Cormac. Thank you again, Joey Pepper. So glad you're back. I'm going to scrape and bow to the great Joey Pepper. Uh, thanks to everybody out there, the Facebook administrators, the sponsors. Honestly, don't skip the ads because that's how we get paid. So listen to the yeah, ads and support the Dopey sponsors. And uh, is there anything else you want to add to the Dopey people before we go? Just be healthy out there and, and make wise decisions. And you know that it looks like DopeyCon is going to be October 8th or October 7th, whatever that first Saturday in October. What do you think, Dad? You're going to be around? 
Well, how come you're deciding so early? October's because people want to know. People want to come to Manhattan and they want to make their plans now. And and from what I understand, people want it around the same time. And that I don't care when it is. October seventh is fine with me. Does that work for you? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's fine. That's fine. And uh, wait a minute. That means you got to start doing the the work already. Holy cow! Wow. What work? What do I have to do? You got to find a, a venue. I mean, uh, I you know, I I think that you had a great venue last time, and maybe I hope it can happen again. Right, so we'll check back at the church. Oh, yeah, most importantly, I didn't say this yet, support Dopey Patreon. If you want to support the show, have you been watching the videos on Dopey Patreon, Dan? Yeah, I, 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 even, I even saw, uh, who was it, uh, Madeline Kahn, and who, who was the Sesame Street character? Gro- Grover. Grover and Madeline Kahn. All right. Yeah, that was very cute. So there's a lot of good stuff on Dopey Patreon right now. So so go to www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. And thank you, Dad. And uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I agree. Okay. <laughs> thank you. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this aeroplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be good so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had these suckers make me mad and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had 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 and these suckers make me mad and it's all I ever had and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had and it's all I ever had and it's all I ever had